Hey there, everybody. Thank you so very much for hanging out with us today and check out Todd Versace presented by TLC. We're stoked that you're here. Check out who's hanging out with me today. It's my friend, Daniel Cassell, president of Indianapolis Fruit. Welcome, my buddy. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thanks, Todd. Looking forward to being here. Appreciate being able to uh, participate this week. I appreciate you saying you're looking forward to it. We haven't even started yet. That's always an optimistic sign. Now, let's see what happens at the end of this. You may, you may fucking hate me at the end of this. I don't know, but we'll see. I don't know. I can, I've, I've navigated myself through a couple of interesting situations in my life. I bet you have. I bet you have. Well, I appreciate you being here and taking time out of your busy day to hang out with us a little bit. You know, you're such an inspiring leader. You're such a, to me, an inspiration because, you know, you truly are a young gun out there. You're, you're somebody that's grabbed the bull by the horns your entire life and um, having the opportunity to be around you a long time like I have and, and uh, especially coming up, cutting my teeth with your old man. And it, it's just really kind of cool to, uh, to see what you've done. So I'm excited that you're here to share and philosophy with us a little bit, my brother. We're going to philosophy today. You up yeah, for that? Hey, it's all about sharing knowledge, man. It's all about sharing knowledge. About. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. I love it. So let's get started. Let's talk a little bit about indie fruit, right? I'm no longer going to say Indianapolis fruit. It's just too long. We're going indie fruit the rest of the way out. So you people that have problems with abbreviations, I apologize, but that's what we're going with. So tell us a little bit about what indie fruit is so we can get everybody up to speed. Well, if it makes you feel any better, our domain name is Indie Fruit because we were just too lazy to type out the rest of the name of the city. So we figured we'll just cut it right there. No, no say honestly, it's brilliant, not lazy. I, I Honestly, I wish that was the case. Maybe it was. That was before my time here, so I can't really speak to that. But Indianapolis Fruit Company is a premier wholesale distribution business. We're based in Indianapolis. Uh, we service roughly 2,700 retail doors on a weekly basis across 18 states. Fresh produce, specialty foods, floral repack and processing are kind of what we stake the business on and certainly provide a unique approach from the service aspect to uh, enhance our offering as well. Well, no doubt. I mean, you guys are covering a big swath of property all around the Midwest. There's no two ways about that. What's interesting to me, and you know, at this point in my career is, is getting to know people like yourselves, guys that I've seen, you know, heard about from your old man playing sports when you're a kid, all this stuff, right? It's totally cool. To me. I love it. I love I'm such a big fan of the next generations coming in to take over this world and take over this business and, and to drive this industry forward. Because I think to me, it's just, it's so refreshing to see kind of that handoff that's going on right now. Um, but you've grown up in this business. There's no two ways about it. So share a little yeah. bit just about your family history with Indie Fruit. Cause it's deep. I mean, it's, it's, you guys didn't start yesterday. Yeah, no. So we've been around for 70 plus years, 1947 uh, to be exact. I know you're standing in front of the old produce terminal sign, but yeah. You know, that sign we, we resurrected from a junkyard down the street uh, when the produce terminal kind of went kaputs here and, and finally were able to restore that and put it out front. So it's, it's nice pulling up on those cold winter days and, and seeing that thing illuminated. It kind of gives you a, a great sense of ethos about what you're doing and why you're doing it. But, man, it's a long time. So 32 years old, I always people always ask me, how long have you been in the business? And, and when I tell them 30 years, they kind of look at me and, 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 you know, in all honesty, I did my first trade show with my dad when I was three. Uh, we were at the PMA and he put me in a tuxedo and I still don't know um, <laughs> if I was of any value or just causing more problems, but I'm sure I was great at shaking hands and smiling. Uh, but no, I started in the three, business at a young a age. A three-year-old in a tuxedo is going to win the day anyway. Yeah. That's just, you, you walk in it, you can walk into a bar with a three-year-old in a tuxedo, you're going to win the day. You know, it. I wish I knew where the PMA was uh, that year. I should, I should, I should know that. But there's a picture. You know, this is his old office. There's a picture in here of, of he and I at that show, and it's just something that I really enjoy seeing every day when I come into work. But 
the, the, the first real memory I have of being in the business was, I think I was seven or eight and he took me to an independent grocer in Illinois and he was doing a reset. And, and my dad, you know, he was, he was really conscious of kind of what he knew in the business and what he didn't know. And, and he never had retail experience. So he surrounded himself with a ton of team members that had worked at retail and run produce mm-hmm. departments and really done some of that work that he did not do in his upbringing. But uh, I remember getting yelled at because I was putting the Gala apples in the Fuji apple slot uh, on the floor. And I kind of looked at him and I was like, dude, I'm eight. Like, I have no idea. You gave me a box. I saw the guy put them there. I put them there. So that was really my, my first experience. And then I was fortunate enough to spend some time working my way through the, the organization in high school and college and did a couple other internships as my college career went on outside of the business. Um, mm-hmm. But my dad was smart. When I was in high school and college, he always had me on the early shift. So I could never go out too late the night before because I had to be at work at five. So, yeah, your dad's crafty that way. It all makes sense, you know, when you get back and you look at it a little bit. Well, there's no two ways about it. There's no two ways. So, I mean, truly, I mean, you literally, I mean, from from the tuxedo to sitting and being the president today, that's a fairly good trajectory. I'm sure the tuxedo probably set the tone. I'm going with that. I'm going to run with the tuxedo thing forever now. Yeah, it's funny, you know, the tuxedo thing is great. And then I, I, this is, I don't remember exactly when, but there was a time around here where you, everybody wore a tie and, you know, you're like, man, these guys are in the coolers and working yeah. and touching product. This is sensory business. And, and now we're, we're kind of gravitating to more of that produce time Silicon Valley feel in here, uh, trying to bring a little bit of that Cali life to the Midwest. But uh, I think if I walked in in a tuxedo today, I'd probably still win the day. Oh, there's no two ways about it. You'd represent strong. I like it. Definitely would scare like some it. people, though. Well, there's probably that, too. I would. <laughs> You're probably right there, too. So tell me a little bit. I mean, you guys do a lot. I mean, you know, you talk about just being a wholesaler. and That's just a big, you know, that's like a 35,000 foot word in a lot of ways. Drill down a little bit and talk about the different aspects of your business model that are in play today, because I think that's what's really cool about what you guys do. Yeah. So Indianapolis fruit has always kind of put the onus on the service side of the business. Anybody right. can show up at your back door with product. There's a lot of people in, in the United States that, that do that and, and do that well. And we certainly understand that that's a cornerstone to being in the distribution business, but we've, we've continued to double down on, on service and consultative piece. We, we really focus on giving our retailers access to people and tools that help them sell product through the front of the store. Ultimately, that leads to a better consumer experience or inventories turning. You're having success with the products that we're bringing to market. Those are things that really help a business operator see value, right? Um, and then when you look at our family of companies in, in 2017, uh, Indianapolis Fruit, which was part of IFMP Foods, was acquired uh, by an equity partner. Uh, and now we have access to an immense amount of resources that we leverage both on the food service and the retail side as, as part of that family. Right. And, Indianapolis Fruits greatly benefited from that in the the culinary influence at retail in the last three to four years has blown up. Um, you Almost all of your premier grocery operators have a, a vice president of culinary or an executive chef on staff doing meal kits or meal planning or working on hot bar recipes. All of that culinary influence and skew mix and assortment that we traditionally had sold through our food service side it, uh, under Piazza Produce's brand and umbrella has right. become way more relevant at retail. So Indianapolis Fruit has been able to piggyback off of that and help our retailers kind of expand that culinary offering uh, as well. And then the processing piece, you know, processing is an interesting beast. Uh, it's a challenging business, but ultimate, so. 
ultimately processing provides an immense amount of opportunity for retailers to focus their energy on areas of the business that require them to be more hands-on. So right. labor is extremely tight. Liability is a concern for a lot of people. Innovation is not cheap. All of those things we shoulder here uh, in our garden cup facility and offer that retailer the opportunity to kind of put their energy elsewhere where they think they can add value while we're uh, adding it on the other side. Yeah, you know, it, a lot of times people get caught up, I think, with the wholesale model as some kind of, um, I don't know, an added cost, an added issue. You know, it right, it, it really does. But really, it's honestly, it's a positive cost of doing business. It's a positive cost of food, as I like to say, is that you provide a service, you create a situation to try to help people excel all the way through that just maybe maybe this guy at this side can't quite get there. Maybe this guy over here can't quite get there. And you find that way to bridge the gap. And I, and I, and I appreciate the way you framed that up. One of the things that, that I, I was really interested in when I you know, was talking to you about coming on and, and uh, BSing with me for a little while is the fact that uh, trying to get back so much of, of my time and energy back to young people as they're, as they're you know, growing and learning and all these other things, I think it's just super important that we do that. And one of the things about you that's super impressive that I like is your style, is your leadership style and who you are. You know, like I said, I, I called you a young gun. There's several people I call that too that are out there in the business today. And I'm, I'm excited because I look at you as such a positive next generation, you know, to, to, to take us where we can't see where we're going yet. Um, but one of the things that you talk about that I think is really, really cool, and I'd like for you to elaborate on, is you use the word partnership and pillars. Um, share with me a little bit and, and everybody, you know, what that means. What's that mean to you? So, it's actually really simple and, and partnerships probably an overused word. I think most people in the business are tired of hearing about partnerships and what's a partner and all those things. But when, when we talk about pillars, it, it's essentially a fancy word for expectations. And I think mm -hmm. one of the things that people in all aspects of the supply chain overlook is the value of establishing clear expectations when you start doing business together so that it's very easy for each side of the coin to establish whether the opportunity is beneficial. And there's not enough mutually beneficial businesses, uh, excuse me, business relationships in right. this industry. And the expectation piece is so overlooked so often that we've kind of found that to be a little bit of our secret sauce because there's so many areas you can dedicate your efforts and your energy to and be distracted by when you're in the service business that if we know exactly what's most important to that customer and the vendor knows exactly what's most important to us, in turn, you can set up your whole offering to hit those buttons quickly and often. And, and that makes everybody happy, honestly. And if, if those expectations are unreasonable and you know about them on the front end, it provides you an opportunity to have an honest conversation before it hurts anybody's performance. And that's where we see a lot of the relationships fall apart um, on the supply side, both to the retailer and from the right. vendor network is everybody starts backpedaling, trying to fix things they didn't know were an issue. So right. if we're upfront and we're uh, clear about those. You can get them out on the table early, which in turn makes everybody operate more effectively throughout the life of the business. 100% agree. I say it. I mean, it's the most important thing you can do is get people to understand your business if you want to truly understand theirs. Yeah. And you'd be surprised how many people, when you ask them what the expectations are, don't have real good answers. So we, no. we've had to, we've had to become really good at kind of framing some of those conversations with our customers and our vendor partners so that they can better articulate to us what's important to them, which allows us to do our job at a higher level more consistently. 
Absolutely. 100%. I mean, transparency is key, right? Complete understanding, honesty. Um, why is it good for you? Why is it bad for me? And vice versa. And how do you win the day? I mean, those are all a part of benchmarks of building that ladder of success, which is why I wanted to have this conversation. With you. <laughs> so something that some people probably do know, don't know, I don't know, but you know, you, you and your wife are, have a young family. I mean, you guys are just kind of getting going. So you're juggling a bunch and your wife's a ball, right? Your wife is, uh, she's, she's a baller. She's in, you know, the professional sports business and, and uh, you guys are, are juggling a whole lot right now. So I'm going to take it away just real quickly from getting back into the grind of the business, but I got to ask the question, how do you find life balance? Because life balance is such a key part in leadership, right? It's a, it's, it's a part of leadership that people look away from and don't put energy into, but how do you find life balance with your young growing family right now? This episode of Todd Versations is brought to you by Todd Linsky Consulting. Organic. People. Purpose. Connect with us at tlc.organic to learn more. Man, I totally didn't appreciate life balance uh, until recently. We have a two-year-old and a six-month-old, and I've forced myself to make some time for them uh, and, and for my wife, obviously, in a business that never stops. It's not right. easy. Um, and her business never stops, you know, being in professional sports, the off season is just as busy as the quote unquote on season. And, right. and, uh, it's, it's honestly a joy to kind of watch her be as successful as she has been because she's worked her tail off to get there. But, you know, a couple of fundamentals that are key to our relationship is you got to compare calendars, man. We, uh, we have that awkward conversation. Hey, what do you got going on this week? What days are, uh, super booked for you? And, and we both have a really good understanding that, at, at many times, one of us is not going to have the most ideal situation on any given day because the other one has a meeting that can't get moved or a meeting with somebody that's going to take longer or they can't make a daycare pickup or they've got to be overnight somewhere. And once you understand that uh, you, may, you may have to learn to be flexible, which is pretty much what you do in the produce business every day, uh, right. you're in a good spot. And realistically, you know, it just comes down to making time for each other and for your right family on. and Something as simple as just having breakfast with my two jabronis uh, goes a long way. Um, you know, only one of them can actually tell me that they love me right now, but I'm sure the other one will someday. 50-50 chance. I'm going to say probably, probably, <laughs> probably will, but you know, I don't know. <laughs> I know you. I don't know, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll probably give them some reasons to float on both sides. Well, I'm sure you're going to. We'll have that. We'll follow up this conversation, you know, about 10 years from now, you know, for sure. Absolutely. So, so. How is your past, right? Because, you know, again, you're, you're still in your early 30s. How has your past shaped you into being the leader you are today? Man, I would tell you, I've had a ton of great examples in my life. Uh, I was very fortunate. You know, we've talked a lot about my dad just because he was in this business. But my mom was an extremely successful businesswoman, worked for a uh, publicly traded organization and, and launched some very prolific brands and, and uh, programs for them that are still in sure. existence today. So, so I'm very blessed in that I've had two working successful business leaders in my life all the way from the, from the jump. And uh, not a lot of kids my age get that access and opportunity. So there's a lot of just learning through osmosis and sure. being challenged at a young age to solve your own problems and, and fail. Not a, not a lot of people get an opportunity to fail enough. And I think we take that for granted. Um, I learned so much just from making mistakes and, and was fortunate to be in a situation where mistakes weren't detrimental or life-threatening or put somebody so far behind the eight ball that they couldn't recover. And, and for that, I'm eternally grateful. But, you know, when I think about how my past has shaped me, 
I have learned through both of my parents that you're only really going to get what you want out of the team that you're trying to lead if you make an investment in understanding what they want to get out of that right. whole process. And we have a really, really dynamic workforce here, young, old, uh, tenured, inexperienced, uh, super dynamic personality group. And, and all of them are here for various reasons. And understanding what those reasons are is extremely critical to kind of how we shape what we do as a business to put them in the right place to be successful. And, and to me, making an investment in people is something that I don't know that I really, I always knew it was important, but I don't know if I really appreciated it enough until I got into this role um, and started honestly leading people that I used to work side by side with when I was eight, nine, 10 years old in some instances. Well, you had the tuxedo on. So, I mean, it's not who's going to argue with you about wearing a tux. Fair enough. I, every time I talk about that story now, I think of the scene in Step Brothers where they go to the interview and they're wearing a tuxedo. That's exactly what I'm thinking of. Sanitation job. 100% agree. 100% agree. But you always overdress, baby. Always overdress. Well, that's, what, that's my motto. No, it's absolutely not my motto. <laughs> <laughs> Except underdressing. It's perfectly fine. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit, um, you know, the fact that, you know, you touched on it earlier, you know, you guys are a legacy family business and generations change, people change, thoughts change, ideas change, businesses change, et cetera. And you guys went through a transition as a family owned business um, to one that is now, you know, is now privately owned by a private equity company. Right. So can you touch a little bit on that transition and what that was like and, and what you kind of went through through all that? Because it's a fascinating story that I think people, you know, people hear venture capitalists and equity and blah, blah, blah. And they really don't understand what it means and what, it, you know, because there's these war stories and there's some really good stories. And you guys are one of the really, really good stories. And I'd like for you to touch on a little bit about what that transition was like. Yeah. So it was a long process and, and I was relatively quote unquote young in the, in the organization at the time that most of it went on. I think I had been here three, three and a half years, maybe right. four when, when the transaction became official. I can't quite remember. I should. Um, we, we had a unique situation in that the original shareholders in our business all wanted the organization to progress successfully, but had varying viewpoints on what that entailed and, and how we should get there. Um, and they, Eventually, you know, we're able to find a partner in Rotunda Capital that was really willing to invest in the people and the business that they had built versus buy and and run the business that they had built. And I think that's really key. And I think it's a testament to not only the people at Indianapolis Fruit, but all the people that work for our family of companies at Fresh Edge is our, our partners in Rotunda have invested in us and the brands that have been built not invested in running the businesses and, and trying to dictate kind of how those things should work and flow on a consistent basis. But ultimately there were a lot of horror stories, right? You, you do your due diligence, you talk to people about how it's gone yeah. and people have had great experiences. You know, our experience has been nothing short of fantastic in working with Rotunda, but um, I think ultimately, you know, what it really comes down to with them is, is they saw the opportunity they realized that the people that created the opportunity were the people that they needed to be involved and engaged in the business on a daily basis and have given us the opportunity to, to do that in the manner in which we felt and do feel today is going to be the most successful. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, I, I talk to people 
you know, obviously all the time. And I, I talked to somebody that's in a similar situation where they had, you know, people come in and one of the deals was, is that they took a board seat and all of a sudden you have a new board member that comes in with this group and, and Hey, guess what? I used to do it this way and boom, the wheels fall off the bus and everything starts to spiral because they want to make these deep cultural changes, which can be deadly to a company. Um, and it's, it's interesting because a lot of times you see these, these guys that come in too, and it's like, all right, we're going to be here for three years. We're going to try to thin this thing out. We're going to get our money back quick. We're going to flip it. You know, they have all these, these ideals that aren't culturally aligned with what you've done. They're not necessarily even philosophically aligned with what got you to the point of being valuable enough for them to throw money at you. And, you know, it's interesting and it's, it's encouraging to me to see that these guys, you know, are really somewhat, for lack of a better word, hands off because you do have such a great team and you guys are marching forward. So where's Rotunda looking at you guys? I mean, where are they leading you today? I mean, if you could kind of frame that up. Yeah, I think the beauty of Rotunda is they're kind of letting us lead ourselves in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, and I don't mean that to be coy. I, I really I really do feel that way in that they really have not come in and set any North Star for us. Um, they have really been collaborative in educating themselves on the business, understanding mm -hmm. the dynamics and the moving pieces associated with the food business um, right. and giving us access to resources to help kind of help us make those decisions and set those roadmaps up in a more efficient and timely manner than maybe we would have had when we were family owned. Um, right. But we, we really have been able to control our own destiny. And that's, that's been the, the, most critical piece of why this deal has been successful, in my opinion, is that nobody in any of the organizations feels like they're getting, quote unquote, bullied to do something that they wouldn't have done um, when we were a family owned business. And there's not the seismic shift of cultural changes and things of that nature. Now, look, certainly, you know, we're, we're looking at things more metric related. We're much more sure. data driven than we were. But those are those are trends that family owned or private equity owned. You were going to make as a business coming into the 2020s regardless. Right. Sure. Um, and, and their ability and confidence to keep all of the executive leadership in place speaks volumes to the ability of the organization to continue to grow and kind of stack up and build on what was here uh, before they were part of the team. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to me, it's really refreshing to see because I think that, again, one of the big problems you start to see with some of these acquisition things go on, they, just, they you know, they're great for six months and then they just go off the rails. Right. And then you end up not having the same thing because you guys, you know, being around 70 plus years, you know, again, there's a cultural thing going on. There's a cultural thing that goes on multiple levels with, with independent retailers, with with people that are out there that have an expectation of, you know, of who you were. And that expectation is that you remain who you are. Right. Yeah. And I think that's super important. So and, it's encouraging to hear that. And I think, you know, we talked about pillars and, and I kind of learned that through our original shareholders at IFMP Foods, they, they were very clear about what their expectations are for any sort of partner that they were going to find. And mm -hmm. I think that's really allowed this deal and, and partnership to be as successful as it has been because Rotunda knew exactly what they were getting themselves into on the front end and the opportunity that existed. But also, you know, our shareholders kind of protected the expertise that was here and made sure that Rotunda understood the value of that and has invested in it moving forward. Um, it's been a great partnership, and and I and and I would, I would be honest with you if there, if there were big challenges, but but it's been extremely seamless. They've been a fantastic financial partner, but also right. just an just a, a good uh, encouraging partner. You know, they've allowed us to try a lot of new things. Not all of them have worked, 
Uh, but they understand the industry needs as much innovation as possible. And they absolutely and they've asked us to kind of push the envelope on some of those things as well. I think it's really cool. So tell me, with that being said and kind of that frame up, um, what are some of the leadership lessons that you learned so far that you didn't see coming? And, you know, and I touched on how would you handle them? <laughs> uh, so, you know. I learned that age really doesn't matter. You know, there's Damn a lot straight. of stereotypes. Damn straight. Yeah. Damn straight. There's a lot of stereotypes out there about, you know, what young people want or, or feel and, and what people that have been in the workforce for, for a long time want or why they do things. And, and what I really learned is, is it's really individual, regardless of age, it's, it's important to that person and, and the lifestyle or socioeconomic background that they're in. So, so that's one and, and really understanding, you know, on an individualized level, what's important to the people that you work with and, and work side by side with and work sure. for. Um, the other one is the impact of transparency and, and trying to establish that in, in, in any business in, that moves this fast with this many people uh, isn't always easy to get people information as quickly as they want it. Uh, but we went from a situation where we weren't really giving them much at all to now almost all of our team members can come into the system, to the process, to the workflow every day and check in on their own individual performance, whether that's through scorecarding or dashboards. And they can, mm -hmm. they can self grade themselves and they can say, man, I had, damn, I had a good day yesterday or, well, I really got to pick this up versus waiting for somebody to tell them. Uh, and right. that unknown, that unknown for a lot of people was creating a lot of angst and anxiety in our organization. So giving them the tools to kind of know where they stand and what they need to do better and what they're doing well has elevated performance and morale pretty quickly for us. Um, and last but not least, you know, it's, it's hard with as, as much as we're growing and as quickly as things move to, to not do everything face to face, but hand to hand combat still kicks ass, man. And yeah. the, the most you can get in front of people either over the phone or face to face. And, and that's been challenging with COVID. But but hand to hand combat goes a long way uh, from a relationship standpoint in all areas of our business, both on the customer side, the internal side with our team members and also with our vendor and supply chain partners. Sure. Well, I love it. I love what you said about, you know, the people being informed, because I, I one of the things I, I tell young leaders, like if you're waiting for a job review to tell somebody they're not doing something right, you're just a shitty manager. Right. Yeah. A job review to me, a job review should be positive. It should be what are we doing next? What are our goals? Where are we heading? Because if you had a problem in March and you're waiting to talk to this person about it in November, I don't think you're being a really effective leader. So I'm glad to see you guys taking that proactive yeah. approach because I think it, it's got to it's got to be boosting productivity. It, it is. And I'll tell you, there's you know this and, and most of your uh, subscribers and listeners will not learn anything new by this comment. But our business is filled with a ton of gray area. And yeah. you can always rationalize poor performance or you can always rationalize rapid success with things that were out of your control, right? And by adding in some analytics and some dashboards and scorecards for our team members that are very focused on their individual performance, it's allowed, it's, it's helped us make a very gray business a little more black and white, which helps make a more clear decision quicker in a timely fashion. And the business itself can flow much more consistently and smoothly when you're not waiting on all these things to fall in place. Absolutely. Oh, 100% agree with that. So you touched on COVID a little bit and, and this pandemic and, and you know, uh, who knows, who knows what tomorrow is going to be like with this. But I got to ask the question. I mean, what have you, you know, what is this, what is this, this, you, you know, your, your old man's old, but he's not Spanish flu old. He's pretty close. And hopefully he's watching this and he'll, he'll 
probably text me afterwards, but I don't care. <laughs> but nonetheless, I mean, this is uncharted waters, right? This is a big learning curve for everybody on this planet. So what, you know, what did COVID teach you about leadership and running a perishable business? Yeah, so from a leadership perspective, I think it's be engaged, right? Understand what your people are dealing with. Uh, you could read a million articles about managing a workforce during this time period and, and the emotional side of that, the physical side of it, the, the health and safety side of it. And I think just being engaged and, and trying to be as informed as possible so that you're not making decisions in a vacuum is, is number one. From a business perspective, you know, you obviously learn to never say never. There's a lot of things that I would have said never about that uh, I learned not to ever say again. But I think for me, we, we got asked a lot as an organization prior to COVID, how do you manage food service, retail, the difference, needs, wants, desires, two very different customer bases, product mixes. Now, you know, we could not be more satisfied with our diversification going through COVID is that, you know, we had different business segments that buoyed the other and, and as they come back and you've learned about, you know, how to grow your retail business successfully, how to handle that growth and our food service business is coming back. Now you have two monsters versus having a one headed monster that's out there trying to carry the weight for the whole organization. So being diversified, both from a, from a customer segment standpoint, a sourcing region standpoint, partner standpoint is, is critical. Um, and then give your business and your people the opportunity to pivot quickly. Um, we have a relatively flat structure and we, we really try to empower and, and give autonomy to our people to make decisions um, and learn from them versus criticize them for the decisions that they've made, because we want them in the moment to make the decision that they feel is best for the business and the customer, regardless of who, who that is. Um, and then if it's not right, we'll get through it. We'll work through it. We'll learn from it. We'll coach and counsel them. But if they're, if they're raising their hand, asking if they could make that decision all the time, you're going to be in a bad place. So, so setting the business up to make quick decisions, pivot quickly, move resources around uh, is definitely something that we've kind of accelerated, something we were doing now, but definitely have accelerated our investment in that. Right. And I mean, and you guys got a huge food server side of the business. So, I mean, that had to go from, you know, like everybody did, the lights were on, the lights were off all of a sudden. That's a huge pivot. Yeah. So Piazza Produce is is, is uh, our sister company and, and they're predominantly food service and they managed through COVID pretty well. Um, fortunately for them, they had a strong team and strong leadership that allowed them to pivot quickly, do some interesting things on the direct to consumer side, also work with some of their more institutional partners that, you know, held their head up during everything that went on. And, and sure. fortunately for them, enough of their partners had uh, digital resources that allowed them to keep selling food to people, even if it was on premise. Um, but certainly, you know, they, they definitely had a, a tough time and I wouldn't say that ours was any easier. Uh, no. dealing with some of the influx of demand and the stress and, and capacity issues related to resources. But uh, we're certainly glad that we had both sides of that coin and we're thrilled to, to see Piazza and our food service business coming back on board here. Yeah, I think it's great. I mean, you know, it, 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 it's good to see us things getting back to some normalcy, whatever, whatever that new normalcy is going to be. Yeah, I don't um, know if know. we'll ever be able to define normal again, but it does feel a little bit like it used I, to. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't think that we're going to. And I think that it's going to continue to change. And I think that this, you know, this pandemic is going to continue to change and evolve just like the flu changes and evolves. And it's something we're going to have to be dealing with, I think, for a very long period of time. So it's 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 really the groundwork you're doing now of understanding what you went through is probably going to make a huge difference on what you're going to go through next. 
because we're going to yeah. continue to we're going to continue, I think, to see that kind of a wave and these kind of different things that are going to be happening for a while. Yeah. And I think it just gives you a little bit of affirmation and confidence in some of the decisions that you're making. They don't feel as foreign anymore and you make them quicker and you can yeah. make them with a, a stronger sense of belief in their you know, impact. And anytime that that comes through from the top, it's, it's felt. And, and the organization buys in and jumps on board a lot faster when they feel that conviction. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. So let me ask you, so, you know, now that you're sitting back here, tell me something, was there a class or, or a course that you took that you think you should probably should take more seriously now? <laughs> so I thought long and hard about this question and, and yeah, probably all of them. Um, well, that's, that's, that's a, that's a cop out answer. So, so long story short, I, uh, didn't really decide to register for classes my freshman year in a timely manner. And I got stuck taking a bunch of classes that were not relevant to my major. And all of the typical like freshman prereq classes were oversubscribed. So I took a ton of 300 level classes, which is your junior year, uh, just right. to fill credits and they were open. Right. So I took this class called the biology of food and I was like, oh, man, this would be easy. I grew up in the food business. I, I got this. This is this you is have nothing. a tuxedo, right? I, and uh, it was the hardest class I've ever taken in my life. Um, and it was all about the chemical makeup of foods that are in the marketplace and how right. the science behind it. Completely not, you know. Obviously, didn't do my due diligence. Um, I did okay. I think I ended up with a C, and I got out unscathed. But I. I had no idea at the time. I was just so naive about everything that went into food and the process and the manufacturing yeah. and the chemical makeup and the compilation of nutrients and proteins. And, and looking back, you know, we didn't talk a lot about fresh produce. We talked a lot more about manufactured products in the sure. past. But, but looking back, I wish I would have grasped and invested a little bit more time in understanding that as, as this business has evolved. I do feel like it would have made a a little bit of a, of an impact on my ability to evaluate ancillary product sets and the value they bring to our customers and, and marketplaces a little bit quicker. Well, maybe that was a lesson though from that class, right? Maybe that, maybe that class's entire purpose and lesson was what you just said right now, that realization thing, right? That's kind of like being a leader, right? It's, it's that path that you're on. You don't necessarily yeah. know where that path is going to take you, but if you're willing to continue going forward, generally works out and you learn. Yeah, I tell you what, that, that I, rem I don't remember the professor's name. I'm looking right at him. But uh, the best part about that class was you could rewrite your papers as many times as you wanted until you got the grade that you wanted. But they just you only had to a certain time to write it. So if you turned it in 10 days early, you'd get it back to you had nine days to rewrite. it. So thankfully, I got to rewrite my, my final paper twice or I might not have been out with a C, but it's all right. But we're here. That's the transcript's right. final, baby. The ink is dry. I feel you. But, you know, I'll tell you, it's interesting that you bring this up because I think, you know, one of the things that I really like to talk about and continue to talk about is what is in our food and what is that meant? What is it all about? You know, and you start to think about when you dive into it that, you know, we have, we have regulations for heavy metal in bottled water, but we don't have any regulations for heavy metal baby food. And you start to get deeper into some of these conversations, which is why some of these groups that are out trying to bang that drum are so important. And I'm, I'm hoping that people, you know, we'll take some of the words that you just shared and kind of what I just threw on top of it and go, ah, maybe we do need to pay attention to our food a little bit more and understand because, yeah. you know, food is a drug and it's super important. And, you know, it's the one thing that unites all of us. So, you know, putting energy into that and from that perspective, I think is super important. Um, I want to get a little deeper on a couple of individual subjects that I think that are important to talk about. 
Um, you know, I want to talk a little bit about the kind of the future of the wholesale slash retail kind of the market itself. But um, with that kind of general cloud frame up, I have three individual topics I'd like to touch on um, and just get your take on it. Yeah. Um, specifically uh, around inflation and then supply, uh, supply chain cost impact and what's going on. Man, this could be a whole session in its own. Um, well, if you're boring, I'll just unplug it. We're out of here, so don't worry. Yeah, no, uh, it's a tough one. And, and I think everything that you read right now is people trying to figure out how long is the inflation going to stay the way that it is. And mm-hmm. is it something that organizations need to plan for, for the short term, the midterm, the long term? And, and how much do you let it impact your business or how much do you sacrifice of your existing business today to make it work? And, and for us, you know, it's made doing business certainly more expensive and more challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that that's really any different than it's, than what it's done for our partners on both sides of the supply chain. For sure. I think the consumer has a level of inflationary acceptance that we're probably pushing the threshold on in food. And the last thing we want to see is consumers take those dollars and spend them on food items that are not fresh or less nutritious. And that's, that's my biggest fear is when, when do we make what we're offering to the consumer inaccessible? Um, Right. And you talk about positive food costs and things like that. And there's just a great, you know, underappreciation for what it costs and what it takes to get food from the ground uh, to the table. And I don't know that we'll ever get people as educated as they should be in that or get them to a point where everybody dies happy. But I I do think the inflation has accelerated that, that process mentally for consumers is how much of my spending budget am I willing to dedicate to being fresh Am I willing to sacrifice going out with my friends on a Saturday night to cook a fresh meal? Or can I just grab something that's frozen or uh, processed or not as nutritious and keep that money and buy two extra beers on the weekend? Um, And and that's a that's a small, minute example, but but one that paints a pretty clear picture of some of the methodology that I think families and and individuals are probably going through due to the inflation. And then I think the other challenge for inflation from us is, you know, we deal with uh, retailers of all shapes and sizes, right? And then right. competitive balance in their individual markets and their segments is, is very different. There are retailers, uh, just as there are food service operators that can stomach more of that margin compression than others. And right. as a society that really has gravitated towards artisan small business investment, do we want to see some of that infrastructure gets squashed out because they simply just are priced out of the market and they're not able to eat some of that margin um, until inflation does die down. So that's my biggest fear. Um, I think I think we'll get through it. I think there will be uh, forced innovation. And I think consumers will really have to decide where they're going to spend their money and if they're willing to spend a little bit more for the people that are in their communities and, and with their children and, and provide you know money back to organizations and things like that, or if they're going to go and, and get the best, the absolute best uh, value for their dollar. Right. Well, 100% agree with your perspective. And, you know, one of the things that I keep trying to, to keep banging is, again, this positive cost of food conversation. You know, labor is a positive cost of food, right? We need to understand what it takes. Labor in, you know, California, labor in the fields is a challenge. You know, labor, you know, you hear about labor challenges in California, but they're 
even harder in Michigan. They're even harder in Wisconsin. They're even harder in North Carolina. There's some big problems out there. And I agree with you that the consumer, I think two things, one of which there's that threshold, but then there's also, I believe, an information threshold that we haven't hit yet with the consumer, where they need to start to understand that water, water technology, being able to put water on a crop is a positive cost of food that we need to look at, we need to talk about, and we need to embrace. So I appreciate you saying it the way that you framed it up. And so part two of my three-parter on this thing is, is really is labor, right, in one aspect. And one of the big problems that I know that your industry is facing, your segment industry facing tremendously is, is drivers and labor, yeah. but drivers specifically. I mean, how bad is it? And what are you guys doing you know, at this point, I mean, are you wearing a tuxedo on the street corner with like a sign banging it? You're trying to, you know, doing that sign. Yeah, I'm like thing? the cash for gold guy out yeah, front, that's spinning my arrow, you know, um, it, it's hard. Uh, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. it. It's a challenge, man. And and we're very fortunate to have a, a team of, of we call them delivery dominators that have been in the space for a long time and and, and continue to, to come to work every day and, and, and crush what we ask them to do. They've been asked to do a little bit more than normal just because resources are somewhat limited in that space. Um, so, so very grateful for them. But for us, we've tried a lot of different things, right? So different types of marketing and media. We, we recruit both internally and through external partners. We've hosted job fairs, educational sessions, partnerships with uh, schools and, and trade schools of, of that sense. But I think what, what helps Indianapolis Fruit and, and ultimately our Fresh Edge family alleviate or mitigate the impact that that problem has is when you look at the map of coverage that we're starting to build and, and develop very soon, we're going to be able to localize a lot of our deliveries. Mm-hmm. And that makes being a driver for our organization much more attractive than somebody sure. that has to spend nine hours behind the wheel, stay away from their family, all of those things. So, so being able to localize and make those routes that were overnight routes, day routes, and, and that's quite an undertaking, and it's not something that we'll accomplish in 30, 60, 90 days. But if you start to look at that network, I think for us, way down the road in the future, that makes us a much more attractive employer. And it's one of the things that we can control in that landscape, which should accelerate our ability to fill those, fill those roles. Well, I mean, that's a little tidbit of information you just dropped right there, but I mean, it's real valuable, right? So it's a little expansion notice maybe or a little something something coming on, which is cool. The, the uh, you know, the other piece, and, and it's been floated in a lot of political circles and, and I've heard it talked about, you know, by people that are, uh, you know, much more prominent uh, on CNBC than you and I, but we really got to look at getting the driver age uh, for CDL to 18 versus 21 and, and open up that opportunity or that, you know, relieve, relieve that barrier of entry uh, so that individuals that want to pursue that as a trade essentially uh, don't have to do something else for three years before they decide to do it. Because look, if you look at some of the money you can make driving a, a, a truck right now, uh, there's a lot of people, uh, male, female, um, that I'm sure would, would if they were really educated on the opportunity, you, you can really get your professional and, and financial life off to a pretty quick start um, if that's something that is of interest to you. Well, you make a good point, right? A kid comes out, he, this is what, you know, he's going to go into the workforce. Um, and between 18 and 21, he can have five jobs and find the one that he decides I want to go do instead. And then, you know, you're right. I think it's, I think it's a worthy conversation. 
Yeah, and and I get, you know, all of the dialogue about why, why it is the way that it is. But I think as a society and as a as a country, we've really got to look at some of the some of the networks and infrastructure that we're, you know, stressing out right now and ask ourselves, do the pros or do the cons really outweigh the pros here? And I just I don't know if it's far enough up the ladder of conversation to move as quickly as it needs to move. But certainly as an industry, we definitely need to push for that uh, in any opportunity that we have. Well, I don't disagree with you. And look, a a kid at 18 can go fight a war. A kid at 18 is driving an army truck, right? Whatever it may be. There's no reason why, there's no reason why we can't figure it out. And to your point, it's only going to help this country, right? It's only going to help us in, in a myriad of ways not just specifically your business, but it's going to help in a lot of other ways right now in a situation that is really tough because, you know, it, it's really tough in, in the, in the, in the produce space today, in the food space today, but this, this trucking problem is, you know, everybody's feeling it. Yeah. Look, it's just, it's not a food deal. It's a supply chain in general. You know, we have, we have partners in, you know, we're, we're trying to get some racking for our warehouse and, and, you know, I, I feel like I'm listening to myself talk when they tell me why it's going to be eight months for steel and or lumber right. or any of the materials that are out there just because of the same problems that we're facing. And I think that's helped uh, consumers be a little more understanding mm-hmm. with certain things because it is so prevalent in so many areas. However, uh, as, a, as a nation that's always been pretty quick to innovate, I don't know that this is necessarily solved by innovation. I think this one's really got to be hands-on and, and in the dirt, people trying to add resources to that pool and, and get behind it and, and solve it. That's To me, that's For really sure. the only way it gets handled. This episode of Toddversations is brought to you by Todd Linsky Consulting. Organic. People. Purpose. Connect with us at tlc.organic to learn more. Well, you know, and the third part of this question that I want to get into is the technology side of things, because I think that, you know, emerging technology, whether you're talking about from the farm standpoint of, you know, water and, you know, growing stuff with left inputs, whatever it might be, you know, technology is going to play a very big part of the future going forward. We are now a data driven world, um, you know, and that train has long left the station. So there's no going back to, you know, old school pieces of paper and jotting stuff down. I mean, that has a place, but it's not very long lasting. So talk to me a little bit about technology. I mean, you touched on a little bit with what you're doing, but, you know, when you look at the future of the wholesale to retail channel, how does that play out? You know, I think technology is going to be immensely important. I think right now, there's a lot of people in the food business that are paralyzed by the amount of technology that's out there that could enhance their business. And, and it's, in, it's, it's hurting the adoption rate, quite frankly. Yeah, um, good point. There's a lot of people that have so many technological opportunities being thrown at them that they don't even know where to start. And it's slowing down the adoption process for us. You know, we really look at tools to help. We, we want to help the customer be a better retailer or food service operator. So how can we help solve problems with shrink, order management, uh, labor, timing? Can we make the e-commerce platform more robust? How do we add tools to that to give them better business insights on what's selling in their market that they're not buying? Things that allow us to be an advocate there. Then we obviously look internally, right? How do we optimize the business so that the service level remains as high as it's always been, if not better, but we are more efficient and more effective. So that's time management, any mechanization that you can find. Um, 
And then ultimately, you know, we want to be a better customer as well. Um, so looking yeah. at tools that help us buy better, create more transparency for our vendors on what our needs are. Um, you know this, you, you were on the grower shipper side for a long time. Uh, buyers are not the easiest people to get information. Um, but most of the information that sellers want is there mm -hmm. in the data. So how right. do we take that data and provide our vendor network some unique business insights that allow them to offer us different products, offer us products that are more in line with what we're selling, offer us products at a better time than when they have been sending us opportunities in queue of our business cycle. So really looking at those three buckets of where do you invest, where do you invest first, and then how much investment goes into each one. Right, right. Love it. Well said, sir. Very well, very well said. So let's 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 talk. Let's frame up a little bit. I mean, I want to talk a little bit about the economy because I think that's you know, it's going to be a big part of, I believe, the conversations going forward in the next six months, twelve months. It's you know, it's going to continue depending on what the world actually does, and we're in a unique position because the whole world's kind of in the same economic boat in a lot of ways. A lot of countries printing money right now just to make things kind of work. Um, so tell me a little bit about what you feel kind of the U.S. economy is about and what it looks like to your future. And then I'm even going to throw it even a bigger lob at you and see what you think about the global economy. But let's talk about the U.S. first. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, look. I wasn't going to ask you about the global economy, but the fact that you've got a tuxedo when you were three, I figured, shit, you're going to know how to talk about it. So I'm throwing it at you now. I uh, I, I think that the status of the economy could be uh, could be summed up in, in three letters that I see all too often on meeting invites, and that's TBD for the location. Um and unfortunately, I think due to circumstances, the, the actions and decisions that we've made are very near term. Uh, and I think that was necessary in some scenarios and, and probably overstated in others. Yeah. Uh, and for me, to, for me to say that I'm an economic expert would be, would be unfair. I, what, I, what I really want more than anything is I want people to still be encouraged and excited about starting a business and getting into owning their own thing or idea or sure. opportunity. As, as a son of somebody that started their own business, uh, I saw the pride that that built up in an individual. And I think that we need more pride and sense of ownership in the world today. So I know it's not a financial aspect of the economy, but I'm, I'm, I don't want the economy to become detrimental to people being willing to take risk. And that's my biggest fear because even for this business, you know, a lot of our uniqueness in product offering comes from those producers and people that have invested their blood, sweat, and tears in a small organic farm or a unique, uh, new version of nut butter or, um, you know, juice or, or whatever that may be, uh, that, that, that is their baby. And, and I want the economy to foster that innovation and disruption and make sure that we don't scare people away from jumping into that boat. Great answer. What do you think globally? I mean, you think the, you kind of have the same feeling or. Yeah. So I think the global economy really has forced us domestically to look inward. Um, and, yeah. you know, we spent, all this time looking outward for quite some time that it's really hard right now, whether it's geopolitical, whether it's COVID, whether it's the value of the dollar, inflation, whatever it may be, it is right. really hard 
to do things far away. Um, and there are so many more hurdles and challenges associated with distance that I think the global economy will force a lot of people here in the United States and across the, the world to look at how they can do things better close by. Well said. Yeah, no, I, 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 <laughs> I agree with you. And I'm so glad I asked questions because I knew I was going to get good answers. So I expect that of a dude in tuxedo with three, but you know, I should have wore it today, man. I should have wore it. Well, you know, don't threaten me with a good time like that. I mean, if you're going to do it, step it up. I mean, I would have wore a tuxedo. We could have had matching tuxedos. All right, when we go for version two, we'll just go, I'll go, Done. I'll go orange and you go, uh, blue I have a light, we'll be dumb I have, and dumber. I have light blue. Okay. I'm good with that. Yeah. It's like, it, it, yeah. I, I, I pull, I can pull off the light blue. You go ruffles or you go straight cut. <laughs> Dude, I mean, why why are you gonna why are you gonna go to dinner and not order salad? Of course, I have freaking ruffles. You think I'm <laughs> yeah, fair dude, enough? Hey, hey, My the bad. world. There's plenty of people in the world that can shoot layups. People need to take more three pointers. I'm a three pointer with ruffles. That's what I'm That's talking fine. about. I get it. You're you're pulling up for three and a three on one fast break. I know you. Done. Absolutely, hundred percent. You can guarantee it. You know, <laughs> I, I got to tell you, you know, I I was excited to chat with you because I know you and I know you know what you're about and stuff and. I, the eloquent nature in which you spoke and, and answered these questions and, and your thinking and, and your mindset is, is it just blows me away. Right. It's just, it's just, well, there's, there's a, there's a, there's an element of pride there because I've been around you, you know, a, a long time. And I wanted to share that, you know, from my heart to you, but you know, you're an inspirational person. Tell me somebody in your life that inspires you. Right. Cause you, you know, you just didn't wake up. Well, you did kind of wake up in a tuxedo, but nonetheless, I mean, being inspired by people is so important. You know, I say it all the time. If everybody in this country would just go inspire one, take one day, like next Thursday, if everybody would just say one inspiring thing to somebody else, we could solve a lot of problems. Yeah. You know, I talked a little bit about my parents early on and, and seeing both of them kind of build their careers different ways, but, but aspire to be great professionally and personally is certainly inspiring. But when you look at this business and, and what I do every day now, you know, my colleague, John Cunningham has, has been a great inspiration in that sense. And John, from a mentorship standpoint, it's been an open book with me. But I think the one thing that's really meant a lot to me is, as I've gotten to know him, is, you know, John John worked his way up in the food business from retail to distribution to sales yeah. to essentially, you know, side by side with me running an organization here that serves 550 retailers and 2,700 doors in 18 states on a weekly basis with 3,500 highly perishable skews downstairs and yeah. somebody that wants that growth and wants that challenge and respects the difficulty that comes with it and understands that it's not always the easiest thing to do, but it's meaningful to succeed in uh, has just been awesome to kind of be a part of as, as he's done his thing, essentially. Johnny's a good guy. King of softball. He's a good guy. <laughs> he's a great dude, man. <laughs> He really is. Tell me something. You know, I, I asked this of everybody that comes on to get to know you a little bit, because I think it's an important part of it. You got a great quote that you <laughs> shared with me that I, I just it's I think it's a great I, I just think it's a great quote for starters. But I think it kind of just sums up a lot of what we talked about today. Share with everybody what your quote is. Yeah. So for all my Peloton riders, you'll probably laugh, but I, it might have been recency bias when 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 Todd asked me the question. But I went with uh, something that uh alex toussaint says in his rides is the great ones work or the good ones work out and the great ones outwork mm -hmm. and you know i think 
there's only a few things in life you can control. Your attitude is one, your level of respect for other people is, is, is two. And, and three is how hard you go every day. And it's prolific in, in his rides on, on Peloton that almost every level of effort is, is your decision and it's a mental piece. And until you decide that you're willing to get to that next level, the only thing holding you back is you. And so there's a lot of one, there's a lot of high level performers and extremely talented people out there that, that, that work out. Um, but the ones that outwork are, are the ones that tend to be sitting on top of the mountain looking down. For sure. There's nothing wrong with hard work. No two ways about it. No two ways about it. All right, let's have some fun. I'm gonna put you on the spot. You ready? Yeah. Here it comes. Here it comes. We're going to do a little trivia time. Oh, shit. All right. Oh, yeah. Now be ready. Here it comes. First one on a scale of one to 10, how strict were your parents? Seven. Who was tougher, mom or dad? I know the answer to this one. I'm guessing. Uh, mom was tougher. Dad always gave you the I'm disappointed. So, you know, mom, mom, Kath, he gave you the once, guilt. He gave you the guilt. Yeah. Mom, mom was like, shit. I, I know what's coming. This conversation is going to suck, but like it was over in 10 minutes, right? When dad gave it to you, you got up and you left and you're like walking away and being like, man, I'm fucked up. He's not happy. Uh, so, so they both had, you know, they, it wasn't good cop, bad cop, but like mom was like, you just took your beating and it was rough and you knew it was rough, but like, it was like, hey, don't do it again. You're done. You got your sauce and now leave. And his was like, man, dude, I'm not going to sleep tonight because you fucked up. And I'm oh, like, he's going to mumble and mumble you to death. And just, yeah. What'd you say when you were walking? What, dad? What? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And and so they both had their own recipe for it. I love it. I, that was going to be my guess, by the way. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I should have thrown it out. I should have put a little money in Vegas. That was my guess. So tell me, your pizza or a calzone guy? Pizza. Yeah, well. Sorry, it's a stupid question. I didn't even know what I had. It's like dog no, or cat. Hey, look, a good calzone is very underrated. It's true. It's true. But, you know, pizza's tough to pass. So if they were going to make a movie of your life, who would be the actor that plays you? You know, I'm going to say this and, and people can laugh all they want. And, and oh, they're going to. I, and I don't know that I would agree with it, but it was extremely flattering for four years of college to be told that I looked like James Franco all the time. So I'll roll with James Franco. Nice. OK, I could see a little James Franco in there. Yeah, you know, I did my hair today, so it's not as up and wild as normal. Uh, but, you know, I can I can go for a good now. I don't have that Pineapple Express hair, but I could get something. No. Well, we can spicola you. We can make that happen. <laughs> we can spicola you. It wouldn't be that big. We, we can get the pineapple here, back. We can do some of that. What's your favorite karaoke song? I've heard you. You've got a beautiful, angelic voice. I mean, I know you were in the choir. Yep. Um, uh, yeah, choir. Um, that's interesting. Um, so <laughs> my wife is actually the karaoke champion. Um, and if I ever end up at a show in the industry with her at a karaoke bar, I would put my wallet up against anybody else that she would take home the crown. I won't give away her song because we'll need that in our back pocket later. But, you know, I, I love music. I don't know all the words to a lot of songs, but there's one song that I know all the words to. And I did it in a talent show in seventh grade in a white tuxedo with a top hat uh, is Mambo Number no. 5 by my guy Lou Vega. Wow. I would have not seen that coming, but yet I am not shocked. And I had, I was throwing fake money to the crowd. They love me, Todd. Why wouldn't you throw fake money? You're wearing the white tuxedo. nuts at the gymnasium. The top hat. And by the way, just walking in, not only do I want a white tux, but I need the hat. I, I love that, dude. I love that. I got to tell you, brother, you know, 
again, I'm filled with pride to be your friend. I'm filled with pride to see your, you know, your trajectory and your success. And I, I just think you are such a great person and, and are putting so much positive energy into a business that, that at times needs a shot in the arm at times needs some uplifting. And, you know, oftentimes I think that when leaders, you know, they get on a path, um, sometimes it's shaped by people that, you know, are before them, or um, maybe it's, it's changed you know, that with what they now know and what they believe in. And, and for me, you know, I shaped my beliefs and things that I changed over the years by the people I was around, you know, people that influenced me in the moment, you know, um, tough meetings, tough, um, tough decisions, um, debate back and forth, et cetera. And, and it does make you rethink stuff. And I, and I appreciate, you know, the perspective that you have brought here today. So my final question to you and, and thinking today earlier about being, you know, a, a young parent and what you're doing and all the things in front of you, what's something that um, you'll be looking forward to sharing with your kids when they grow up and they start to look at a career that you've learned? It's okay not to know. And yeah. I think, you know, I, I grew up in the business and, and always thought this is where I would end up. When I was in school, I was really positive that I wasn't going to come back uh, into this business or the industry at all. And, and quite frankly, did not. After college, I went into the commercial insurance for three years and, and truly loved what I was doing. But I did that because in the commercial insurance business, I was going to get exposure to all types of business operations and industries, whether that was manufacturing, processing, painting, plumbing, uh, marketing. And I was hopeful that through that process, I would figure out what I really wanted to do because I didn't know. Um, right. And what it really came down to at the end of the day is every time I would meet with somebody and, and get to know their business, I kept starting to think about what they were doing well and how it would help this place be more successful. And it finally hit me that this is where I needed to be. So it's okay to know, or it's okay not to know. It's okay to investigate and it's okay to try some things and, and realize they're not for you. Um, because in today's world, you know, everything is right now, right now, what have you done for me lately? And there's a lot of pressure on young people to have answers when they unfairly, you know, should have time to, figure it out. Pretty sound advice from a, from a young gun leader out there in today's world. <laughs> Thank you. Like I told you in the beginning. Thank you very much for taking the time to share. I told you we we're going to philosophy a little bit. We did. That's all right. You know, I, I, but but taking that time to just be brutally honest and give people some, you know, some leadership lessons and and to mentor. I mean, you know, this platform allows you to mentor to people you don't even know exist, right? You think about the number of countries that we're on and the people that are listening. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking time to hang out with us a little bit. I truly appreciate you. And I think your words are going to resonate. I think your words are going to have a lot of meaning to a lot of people. So I just, again, thank you very much for hanging with me. Yeah. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. I always love jamming on good questions and hanging out with cool people. So especially media moguls. Well, I don't know about that part. I don't know. Those last two things are probably a bunch of BS, but nonetheless, it's just good to give back, right? It's good to go inspire people. And that's what you've done today. And that's really what this is all about. So thank you again for hanging out. Thanks everybody for checking us out. We appreciate you being here and uh, go make it a good day. Like I say all the time, go inspire somebody. Just like Daniel does every day when he walks in that building, go inspire somebody. It's important. So thanks for being with us, everybody. We'll, we'll chat soon. Take care. Well, that was a productive amount of time hanging out with Daniel. 
what a great young man, what a great voice, what a great mind, what a great opportunity to, to hear from, um, really, as I call him, a young gun coming up, making changes, making the world a better place. And so uh, thank you so much for stopping by and checking it out. We really do appreciate it. Uh, don't forget to, to uh, subscribe and rate and review. We're on all the podcast channels all over the globe. Uh, don't forget our YouTube page where you can watch this uh, if you want the video version of this, including closed captions. You can certainly see it there. Um, we're all over the social media sites, LinkedIn, especially uh, Instagram, TLC underscore conversations. Uh, we're just thrilled that you took some time out of your day to hang out with us. We really do appreciate it. And come share your story with us. This is what this is about. It's about giving back and it's about uplifting brands and people behind them that are making a difference in this world. We need more of these conversations. So thanks very much for being a part of it. We really do appreciate you and uh, make it a good day. And remember, go inspire somebody today. It's really important. Take care.